Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The Greenville Oaks Church of Christ seeks all who need Jesus and together are becoming His fully devoted followers, encouraging and equipping people to love God, love people, and serve others in an ever-growing way of life. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. church. It's been good to sing uh, God's praises today in this house and to share in communion and be reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you more about that good news today. We're starting a seven-week series within the larger series of the Gospel of Luke called The Gospel According to Luke, uh, which may sound like a tame title for a series, but I want to assure you, I don't think this is status quo stuff, what I want to share with you. When I hear the word gospel, I grew up in church, and so I have some things that come to mind for me, but that's not a word that our culture uses a lot. Uh, When it comes to me, I think about gospel, I think about it a couple of ways. One is uh, the gospels, right? The first four books of the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus' life. And so uh, we have, you know, what we often refer to in shorthand is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the titles at the top of the page, if you open up to the New Testament, is the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark. And Gospel according to Luke and the gospel according to John. And so that's one way I think about gospel. But the other is it's a message. It's something to be shared, something to be preached. In fact, Peter talks about that twice in his letter called First Peter, uh, that the, the message uh, or the gospel was shared. It was preached uh, wherever those uh, early disciples and Christians went. Those are the two ways I think about it. But in the first century, gospel was a normal word that was thrown around. The Greek word that we get, that we translate as gospel, is actually the word euangelion. And if you're looking at that word, you can actually pick up, it looks like evangelism or evangelical. It actually comes from the same kind of root word. And it simply means good news or, or gospel is another way that we translate that word. Now, in the first century, everyone would have known this word because a lot of euangelions were going out. It was a word that Caesar used. Every time the Roman empire would expand, he would announce a euangelion, basically a message of good news, a a gospel. Uh, And this was anytime like, you know, if you think about how, how big the Roman empire was, it stretched from modern day England all the way to India. So it took a lot of expanding to get that big. And then every time they would fight a battle or they would take over a new territory that would pay new taxes and they'd have new slaves and servants, they would say, this is, this is a euangelion that Caesar would put out so that everyone in the empire would know that the, they, they had good news to share, this message that the land was expanding. Every time there was a, a new uh, Caesar, a, a son of Caesar that was born, he was considered a son of God, a divine being in some sense. And that, there was a good news, there was a euangelion that was put out, this message, this heralding of good news, a celebration. And what I love about the disciples, the early Christians, is they go, uh, we can use that word too. They actually co-opt Caesar's word that everyone knew meant that. And what they say is, no, okay, Caesar has a way of talking about good news, about a euangelion. But uh, let me tell you, there's another euangelion out there. And it's very different than dominating enemies. Because in that way, there's always good news, but there's always bad news, right? I mean, if you're one of the conquered peoples, 
the Jews being some of those people, that's bad news when a euangelion goes out. Caesar is expanding his territory. But for them, they said, no, that's what we're going to call the story of Jesus. It's a gospel. It's a euangelion. It's the good news that Jesus' kingdom is expanding and going forth. And I love that background. So over the next seven weeks, I want to talk about this because I think, honestly, that Matthew and Luke and John would say that the good news of Jesus Christ is a little different the way they nuance it to the communities that they're writing to. So Matthew has his message about what that is. We talked about this in the Bible series a little while back that if we were to ask them, what did Jesus come to do? They, they nuance that a little different to the communities they're writing to. Well, Luke has a message, and I can't imagine a more important message for the church than what I want to share with you over the next seven weeks as we talk about the good news that Luke wanted to share that was challenging the good news, the euangelion of Caesar, and replacing it with the good news of Jesus Christ. So I want to pray this morning as we open our time, understanding what this good news is, so we might proclaim it as well. Let's pray together. God, we we invite you uh, into this space. You need no invitation, for you are everywhere. But with our invitation, what we open our eyes and our minds to is to your kingdom, and to the changes you want to have happen in our lives, and to a more certain grace and mercy that sets our identity firmly in you. I pray this morning that each of us would sense that, that as we've sung, that you are the only king forever. We want to say that again this morning uh, in this time of looking into the word. So God, would you convince us again? And would you send us forth with this good news? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Have you ever considered the moment before the great speeches in U.S. history or in world history, if you think more broadly? I love being a student of great speeches. I think back to certain speeches, but I I hadn't thought as much about what came right before that as I had this week. I was thinking about Lou Gehrig. You remember that famous speech that he gave at the end of his career, the farewell to baseball address? I wondered, what was it like to maybe be in the dugout before he walked out to give that speech? Or, or Martin Luther King Jr. before he gives the I Have a Dream speech? Or, or John F. Kennedy before he goes to give his inaugural speech and talks about what you can do for your country? Or, or I was thinking about the day that many of you remember well when the Challenger exploded and, and, and Ronald Reagan gets on stage and, and, and tries to talk the nation through that. What was the moment before those great speeches? What was it like to prepare uh, to come up before a crowd and to say something important? And as I was reading the text this week, I realized we get a glimpse into that when it comes to Jesus. That Jesus preaches what's known as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. But in in Luke, Luke says, no, it's actually a flat place where this sermon is preached. And, And it's a little bit different, the nuances about this sermon. But I think it's the best place to start to understand the good news that Jesus came to bring. And so I want to preach from this passage. But before we get to the passage, I want to set up with what came before this sermon that he gave. What did Jesus do to prepare? And it's clear That he did prepare. So this is Luke chapter 6, verse 12, where I want to pick up the story. One day, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, uh, before he goes to select these disciples, what it says is he went up on a mountain to pray. And you see this throughout the Gospel of Luke. Before an important moment in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is going to go and spend time in solitude with God up on a mountain often before he makes these big decisions in his ministry. So he does this before picking the twelve. And then you're going to see him do it also in other parts of his ministry as we read on. But but he also does this prior to this sermon that he's going to preach. 
Let's read on in verses 17 through 19, what happens when he comes down from the mountain. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Now, this is a diverse group of people, as the text says, that there's people from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, which means there's Gentiles who are here and there's Jews who are here. There's people who need healing and there's people that seem to be healthy that already have this good news that they are are just coming to, to hear from Jesus and to see what he's doing. So this diverse group comes up. And Jesus begins to share with them and he heals them. And this is what I love about Jesus is in our world, we think a lot about contagious diseases, right? Some of you right now have Purell, like ready to, to make sure your hands are clean after shaking hands with everybody in the room, right? I mean, this is flu season. I understand. I, I appreciate James Voss who just gives hands bumps during a flu season. He's trying to, to help the cause. But, but this contagious thing, right? I'm, we, we take great care in our world to make sure that we don't get sick. That we don't pass on disease. We know a lot more about this than we used to know. But in Jesus' day, it's really fascinating because it's not healthy people who get sick when they come in to contact with, with sick people. When it comes to Jesus, sick people get well. It's like the holiness of Jesus, the healing power of Jesus overcomes the sickness. I think this is how the world is actually supposed to be and it will one day be again is that there will be no more sickness and death. There will be no more disease. That's the promise in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the way it's supposed to be. But sin has entered our world. And so uh, Jesus is, is healing these diseases. He's doing incredible things. And the crowd is gathering. And, and it reminds me of the first two verses in all of scripture, what's going on with Jesus. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What's happening in Genesis 1 and 2 and the rest of the chapter is there's chaos, right? There's darkness over the surface of the deep. Things are not put together. And God comes each day of creation and he separates day and night. He separates land from water, the heavens and the earth. All of this is put into order. This chaos comes to order. And I think that's exactly what's happening when Jesus shows up in this passage. He's healing people. He's bringing order into the chaos, which makes me wonder, when I enter a room, is there more chaos that's brought? Or is there more order that's brought? I think that's a sign of our discipleship. But let's move on to the sermon. Jesus stands up for his famous sermon. I know we have limits on our attention spans, and I try to pay attention to that to mix things up in the sermon. But this morning, I'm going to call on you to go back to the 1990s before social media, right? Or 2000s, before the internet came along. And I want you to actually sit in front of Jesus' words in this text for a little while. Because I'm going to read this whole sermon right now. And I know that's a challenge because of the way things are. Jesus didn't tweet in 144 characters or double that now, right? He, He gave this sermon... And sometimes, unfortunately, what we do is when the preacher gets up, I do this when I listen to other preachers, I kind of don't pay attention when I'm driving while the scripture is being read, and then I listen to what the preacher says. And I think it's really the other way around. It should be, right? That the words of power are the scriptures, and then hopefully the Holy Spirit works through our words as well. So I want to read this. I want you to pay as close attention as you can. Put yourself in the shoes of these people who have just been healed, who are receiving the good news for the first time. Looking at his disciples, he said, this is verse 20, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you. And reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. 
For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you'll go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how the ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Someone takes your your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful and don't judge and you won't be judged. Do not condemn. You will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you a good measure. Pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. And the blind lead the blind. Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what they are like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep, laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck the house, but could not shake it because it was well built. The one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Remember, this is a series about the gospel according to Luke. This is a series about the good news. And that's what Jesus wants to proclaim. In fact, in chapter 4, a couple of places, he talks about this intent. Luke 4, verse 43, listen to this. He said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Jesus came in order to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Caesar. And he came to proclaim that message to specific groups of people. Remember back to the synagogue sermon in Luke 4. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Listen to these words in Luke 4 verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. When I read those lists, my thought is, those aren't the groups that I fit in. I don't consider myself poor or imprisoned 
or oppressed. And when Jesus pronounces blessings at the beginning of his sermon in Luke 6, he doesn't include me in that list either. When Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount, it's a place I can find myself in a bit more. Remember Matthew's version of the sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not always there, but there are days I feel like, yeah, I'm blessed. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm humble enough to receive God and his kingdom. But Luke, Luke leaves out the in spirit. It's just blessed are the poor. Or in Matthew 5, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But Luke doesn't say it for righteousness. He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are hungry. And then he says, blessed are those who weep and are hated. And I think, yeah, my worst days, that's me. But, but there are people who weep more often than I do. And who find themselves excluded and spoken poorly about, insulted. And then I look at the list of woes and I think, man, that's my category. The rich. The well-fed now? Woe to you who laugh now? Woe to those of you who people speak well of you? Now, before you try to ease my conscience with this and tell me, well, Jesus couldn't have possibly meant what he said simply in these words, I want to challenge us because there's a part of us that wants to do that, isn't there? Part of us wants to opt for Matthew's version and not listen to Luke's version because I like Luke's, uh, he talks about woes. I like Matthew's. There's no woes. It's all blessing in that passage, right? But I think we need to hear this. In fact, this is a place I'd love for our small groups, our message focus groups and connect groups who are talking about this tonight and, and this week. I wanna, I'd love for you to have this conversation. Why does Matthew and Luke, why do they have these differences? And, and what does that mean? How are we supposed to hear that as people who might find ourselves in the woe category more than the blessed category? So after announcing his initial blessings and woes, Jesus' uh, message only gets more difficult. And as I was reading it this week, I thought back to a quote that has often stuck with me. It's a quote by a guy named G.K. Chesterton. Listen to this quote. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. And when I read what Jesus says in the verses that follow, I have to say, I'm not sure this has been tried before. We see glimpses of it in the first century church, but... What would it look like if we actually put into practice Jesus' words? And what I want to do is I want to go through these verses. I want to point out some do's and don'ts. Jesus says, there's some things I want you to do, and there's some things I want you not to do. So you might want to take a picture at the end of this of these as we kind of lay these out. It's also on you version if you want to pull up the slides there. But uh, listen to this list as he talks in, in the verses that follow. He says, do love your enemies. I want you to do that. Do good to those who hate you. Don't retaliate to people who act violently towards you. Do give to anyone who asks. And then the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then he gets to this don't list. Don't only love those who love you. Don't only do good to people who do good to you. Don't only give to those who can repay you. And then down in verses 37 and 38, the do's and don'ts continue. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Do forgive. And do give freely. As I was looking at this list, I, I got to thinking about it, and I thought, what is the, what's the thing that binds all this together? And I think it's this. Don't let other people determine who you will be. Don't let other people determine your response in situations. If people are rude or unkind or hostile or violent to you, it doesn't give you a right to respond in relation to who they are. And if people are kind to you, if they're giving to you, if they're generous to you, if they, they love you and show appreciation, Don't take that as the thing that allows you to respond well to them. Because here's the thing, church. There's a massive difference between a person who reacts 
than a person who acts. There's a massive difference between a person who reacts and a person who acts. A person who reacts doesn't know who they are. They don't come from a firm place, knowing what their response will be, no matter what people bring to them. And a person who acts knows who they are. They know where their value and their security and identity are. And that means they can respond in Christ-like ways, no matter what comes at them. There's nothing you can do to a person who knows who they are, that knows how to act, that can throw them off course. What is supposed to distinguish followers of Jesus from people who are not followers of Jesus is that we are these kind of people who know who we are and respond no matter what comes our way. What distinguishes followers of Jesus is our loving and generous response to people, not who are going to respond well to us, but those who aren't going to pay us back. And those who are going to continue to respond in hostile ways. And why do we do this? Why do we live this way? Well, I want to remind you of verses 35 and 36. Luke 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. Why? Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. We live this pattern because we have received this pattern from God. When we have been far off, when we have sinned, when we have been unfaithful, God continues to be faithful. He responds in generosity, even to those who have not yet responded to his love and his grace. We are to be like this because this is what God is like. And we're followers of God. We're followers of Jesus who try to follow the ways that we have received from him in response to others. I'd just like to imagine a community that would take that list before and would say, that's what we're going to try to do. We're not going to find it hard and decide not to do it. We're actually going to live into this and see what comes as a result. Because the truth is, church, the world is lost. They've lost their minds. It's us, them out there. It's gone the way of eye for eye. The world's caught in a cycle of violent retribution where this ends up getting this on the other side. It's caught in a cycle of defending my honor and refusing to respect yours. It doesn't have the ability to listen. Grace and mercy are not in circulation. And as I look at myself, I have to wonder, is that any different with me? Or do I respond the same way that I did 10 years ago or 20 years ago before I made a commitment to Jesus? We're supposed to be leading the culture in this. And the culture needs this badly right now. It needs somebody who's going to stand up and stop the cycle of retribution. It's going to need someone who's going to choose to be generous in the midst of people who are not being generous. It's going to need people who are willing to listen with empathy rather than responding because you're not part of us. And Jesus gets down to that. He gives several images about this very idea, about how we're to lead the culture. And he, he, he gives these images. He says, can the blind lead the blind? No, of course not, right? They're going to fall into a pit if they don't have help in sight. He says, can, can a, stucher, a student lead a teacher? Of course not. It's the teacher who leads. We continue to grow so that we can be teachers as well. And then he says this image that's like unforgettable that we're so used to, right? Like, stop trying to figure out how to get the speck out of their eye. Figure out how to get the plank out of your own eye. Because how hypocritical is it if we don't get this figured out in our lives? We're trying to judge others. It doesn't make any sense. We've got to figure it out first in our own lives so that we can be helpful. And not a cartoon as we try to do it. I think the only way we're able to do this is if we are building our house on the rock, which is the last image that Jesus gives. 
Do you remember what Jesus says about this? He says this in the Sermon on the Mount and again in Luke. He says, there's a difference between the wise and foolish person. I've taught you this before, but I think it's so important that we get this. The difference between wise and foolish people, according to Jesus, is not that foolish people have not heard the word of truth and wise people have. No, in this story, both of them have heard. The difference is the wise person is the one who hears these words and puts it into practice. The foolish person is the one who hears and doesn't change anything about their lives. So if you want to build your foundation on the rock, it's not just that you open your scriptures. It's not just that you begin to hear the words of Jesus. You have to do that before you can respond at all, of course. The wise person is the one who doesn't just keep doing the same things over and over. And the wise person is the one who says, okay, I think Jesus' way of life actually is going to get me further than continuing on my own path that leads to destruction. And so how do we do that? Well, Jesus shows us a model before he gets up to preach this sermon. He spends time in solitude before God. He prays up on a mountainside. He finds time to get away so they can hear about who he is and have his identity set so that he's not reacting to people, but he's acting out of a clear sense of what the foundation should be. So we spend time in solitude and prayer before God, and then we understand who we are, and then we're able to respond to others. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you in your walk to find real significance in Jesus. Connect with us on Twitter. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.